0: Hi, Dr. Rushanak.
1: nice to see you here again. Uh, feel free to come up to the stage. We'll wait a few more minutes for uh, the speaker to arrive, but here's the presentation. Nice to see you here. Oh, hi. <laughs> I'm so glad you couldn't make it.
2: Oh, I'm so happy too. I just saw it and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. What a wonderful topic to be discussing today.
1: Yeah, we wanted to, like, um, focus more on Galea because, you know, they were historically so underrepresented in the...
2: Well, and it's also important when we talk about immune function and then how that also correlates to mental health, right?
1: Exactly. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to... um, hearing our guest speaker. She's really nice. Uh, I had the introduction meeting with her. She's really amazing and nice scientist. So, yeah, it will be really interesting today.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Let's share the room out.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'll share the room. (laughs) Thanks.
0: Hello. Hello. Hi, Susi Rahim. How
1: are you today?
3: I'm fine. How are you?
1: Good, good. How was your vacation?
3: Oh, it was so good. So much fun. <laughs> I'm
1: so glad to
3: hear that. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Saying hi to uh, Dr. Hashimun. Hello, hello. Did I say that right, Hashimayun? Perfectly. Thank you. (laughs) Roshanak Hashimayun, right? Yes, I'm super excited to hear from you today. Yeah, I mean, welcome to the team. Thank you.
1: Oh, hi, Jessica. Um, Hello. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Hello, Jessica. How
4: are you? Good. How are you guys?
3: Fine. We're fine. Hello. Hey, Serena. How are you? Everything's good. Steven. Kirko.
0: Hey, Kirko.
3: He's probably away from his phone. So,
2: Doctor Bolton, have you spoken on Clubhouse before? Have you been here before? Is this
4: your first time? <laughs> I have not spoken on Clubhouse before. Um You're welcome! Yeah, thank you.
2: We um, we're often bringing in some academics, right, or people who are not usually on this app, right? Yeah, it's and they're like, hmm. And, uh, and it turns out to be quite, quite nice. And I think it's really wonderful that um, that you're here, that Katarina has brought you here, that we have the opportunity to get some, you know, really um, important and um, powerful academic information because there's so many people that come around and they're just, you know, talking, but to get the really well-researched work. Uh, and I see we have, Girish and Dr. Natalie in the house. Um, I think that's that's wonderful and I
0: really appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Well, I've been really excited to hear this talk. I've recently just become obsessed with the neuroglia, so. Oh, awesome.
2: <laughs> I too am becoming very obsessed with them. <laughs> <laughs>
4: They are very cool, I have to say. I slipped and (laughs)
0: fell down the astrocyte rabbit hole.
4: (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) That's a good way to say it.
2: I'm also interested in the way that they are involved in um, sleep and rejuvenation and then how that correlates with mental health, right?
4: Right. Yeah, there's a lot there all very new i feel like still but <laughs> definitely very interesting
0: well and particularly the um the astrocytes and and the calcium waves and how they would differ in the theta region um waking versus sleep it's just fascinating stuff
4: yeah yeah that's very true definitely
0: So we'll wait a couple more minutes, Katerina you there, or? Oh.
1: Hey, yeah, sorry, my daughter's taking forever, <laughs> she has a dress down there, you know, they have school uniforms, so she's like all excited about picking an outfit still. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so usually she's in bed by now, but she's very excited. Aww. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much. Um, everyone for coming today um welcome to science society and the special things um to dr jessica bolton who will talk today about her really amazing um neuroscience work research and um, she her work focuses on glia and let me give you a little bit of background information and then, if it's okay with you, Jessica, yeah. uh, one of us will ask you a more general question, and then the stage is yours for the presentation, so. Okay. Um, uh, Dr. Jessica Bolton, she did her bachelor's in science in animal behavior at the Southwestern University with summa cum laude, and uh, her PhD in 2015 Psychology and neuroscience at Duke University. I was also at Duke University at some point. Oh, and nice. her, <laughs> yeah, as a PhD student in George Augustine's lab. I don't know. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and her postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Irvine. Mm-hmm. And her specializations are in neuroimmunology, microglia neuron interactions early life stress, adversity, neurodevelopment, behavioral neuroscience. And um, yeah, um, we are very honored to have you here today and we are very excited to hear you speak. But uh, before we start, um, maybe Sasirahim, do you want to ask like the more general question today?
3: Yes, yes, I'll be happy to. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bolton, for coming to see us, to speak with us, speak to us today. Um, so sure. we just kind of like to ask uh, some questions just to get to know you a little bit. Um, so I wanted to ask you, um, how did you get into science? Uh, what was the motivation for that? And, uh, you know, kind of how's the career trajectory been? Is it Was it something that you've always wanted to do or is it something you just maybe stumbled upon Um, and yeah Yeah.
4: it's a great question thank you I'm very happy to be here Um, yeah that's always something I think about because I don't think I knew what being a researcher was (laughs) when I was growing up so um, you know people knew about being a doctor uh, that kind of thing if you liked science but um, not really research as much. So, uh, you know, at first I just wanted to be a doctor. That was the the path. since I knew I loved science and my classes in high school and that kind of thing. Um, I actually grew up loving animals as well. So I learned like all of the names of the baby animals, the different species. Um, I thought for a while I wanted to be uh, working in a zoo or something like that. Um, then I wanted to be a veterinarian. Then I wanted to be a doctor. So it, it progressed. Um, And then I took a class in, uh, college. I think it was my sophomore year that was called research methods. And in, I think it was in behavioral neuroscience actually, uh, which I fell in love with and realized that's what I wanted to do, um, as soon as I took that class. So I think that was really the start of my more scientific path or like following the path of scientific research. And um, from then on, I kind of just went full steam ahead. I went directly to graduate school after college. And, um, you know, that was kind of a funny story actually because I did a, a summer program when I was a sophomore in college with um, with my future graduate advisor and fell in love with that lab. <laughs> so I went back for grad school at Duke um, with Stacy Bilbo. So uh, anyway, that kind of unfolded um, pretty naturally, I guess. And then I went to do my postdoc at UC Irvine um, with Tally Barum, And yeah, just very recently, I guess about a year now, I started my own lab um, about a year ago at Georgia State University. So um, it's all kind of unfolded up until this point.
3: (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. Um. Yeah, and I totally understand. Like sometimes we don't know how many options there are in the science field until you actually in it, and you're like, oh my goodness, there's so many yeah. things I can do.
4: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so that's
3: quite wonderful. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I sh- should have mentioned that. Um, that summer program I did in college is where I fell in love with microglia because I was uh, paired with Stacey Bilbo, who studies microglia um and I realized that's what I wanted to do for grad school so um yeah there are these cool you know alien invaders of the brain basically that aren't born there normally (laughs) um like the other cell types like neurons and astrocytes and oligodendrocytes they just come from the yolk sac during development and I thought that was so cool like what are they doing there you know what's this what's their evolutionary uh function basically Um, so that really got me fascinated starting early on
3: (laughs) thank you thank you so much for sharing that yeah sure okay well uh yeah i guess we can go into the presentation now all righty
4: let me make sure i'm on the right okay um well yeah so i sent some slides ahead of time if you guys wanted to follow along um I realized that I had some cool videos, (laughs) uh, but lately realized that the PDF isn't going to show that probably. So I apologize in advance for you not being able to see the, the cool two photon videos that I've, uh, put in this presentation kind of, uh, in the wrong format, probably. So, um, anyway, you can just imagine, (laughs) but, um, just to get started here, I'll go ahead and move on to slide two. Um, and just start with the basic background of why I study what I study. Um, Basically, we know that early life experiences affect your risk or resilience based uh, to these mental disorders later in life, including things like depression, addiction, and um, even dementia, lower cognitive abilities, things like that um and you know we kind of think about this uh in my uh in my lab as kind of two sides of the spectrum or two sides of the coin kind of having optimal early life experiences leads to more often resilience to these mental disorders whereas uh chronic early life adversity and stress on the other side of the coin lead to risk uh for these same disorders and of course, all of these things interact with um, genetics. So there's it's nature and nurture, it's not one or the other. Um, but for the purposes of my work, we focus mostly on the experience side of the coin and the environment side and how that really can shape um, risk and resilience to, to these mental disorders. Um, so moving on to the next slide here. Uh, we'd like to think about the brain, obviously, as organized as these networks called circuits, um, and the function of these circuits is what underlies complex behaviors like you would consider making up things like your mental health um, or your risk or resilience for mental disorders. It's a very complex uh, um concept obviously but we can try to break it down as neuroscientists into the component parts right so we can think about the circuit as a whole we can also think about the individual components or the neurons um, that are making up these circuits Um, and even more importantly i think the connection between these the connections i guess between these neurons or the synapses um, i think are critical for for the function of these circuits and especially um, how things are wired up during development So, um, if you go down to the next slide, really the question is, um, you know, are or do early life experiences influence circuit maturation during development? Um, Mainly, this is important because we know circuits are immature, they're still plastic and malleable early in life. Um, So there's a kind of right situation, right time, right place essentially for these experiences to change how your brain's developing um early on and my question coming in um as a postdoc to my lab at uc irvine with tally barham was really trying to understand um if microglia might play a role in these uh kind of changes that are happening with early life experiences in your circuits and in the connections between your neurons um and the reason i was really interested in this is because of my um passion for microglia that I developed during my PhD work with Stacey Bilbo. Um, And during my my time in my PhD, um, I think that was 2010 to 2015, one of the most seminal papers came out um, in this field from Beth Stevens' lab um, at Harvard. And they found that microglia actually do something what we call synaptic pruning. They actually engulf synapses or eat them, quote unquote. because they are immune cells, like macrophages in the, you know, skin or uh, the periphery of the body, essentially, um, they can do similar functions, they can eat things, uh, but not just dead or dying cells, they can also eat synapses um, and bits of cells, which is really interesting. Um, And so uh, Beth Stevens Lab and Dory Schaefer, as the first author of this paper, showed that Um, microglia really, really do this important function during development. Um, and specifically during critical periods of development, for example, they found at, uh, day five in a mouse pup, um, is when there's a high amount of synaptic pruning in this brain region they looked at called the visual thalamus. Um, sorry, I apologize for my cat. He always wants attention at inopportune moments, (laughs) if you can hear him, Um, but we'll see if he if he gets distracted. Um, so anyway, the sensitive period really varies by brain region. But here in the visual thalamus, it was really about day five of life for the mouse, um, and it goes down the synaptic pruning level pretty dramatically by P nine um, or postnatal day nine, um, and thirty days uh, into into their lives as well. It's even lower. Um, so now we're moving on to slide six, um, and basically I wanted to, in my postdoctoral work, um, use this uh, naturalistic, uh, relevant model um, that my postdoc lab had developed called limited bedding and nesting, um, which is a model, a mouse model of chronic early life adversity or stress. Um, and so Tally Barham had invented this model about 20 years ago, um and it's it's quite simple really but pretty strong um so all you do is limit the amount of bedding and nesting material that you give a mother mouse um early in life when her pups have just been born so this is uh postnatal days two to nine in a mouse um and the mother mouse with this kind of half amount of bedding that she's used to have um will start to behave differently, actually. So what we see is we see this fragmented and unpredictable behavior um, from the mother uh, because of this uh, impoverished environment or limitation of resources, essentially. Um, And long ago, they validated that this model does indeed increase levels of stress hormones, such as um, corticosterone in the mouse, uh, which is similar to cortisol in humans. Um, And so these levels of increased stress hormones actually persist um, from being high soon after the paradigm's over to um, still being high later into adulthood. So it seems like um, this change has been programmed somewhat into the offspring, which is really interesting. Um, And then going on to slide seven, Um, You can see that we also have behavioral changes that we've explored in this model, not just the stress hormone changes, but we also see um, vulnerability to later stress. We see things like anhedonia, which is the lack of pleasure um, in response to everyday things, um, which is a symptom of depression. Uh, Cognitive deficits are a a big thing in this model as well, um, along with progressive cognitive decline, so something like dementia um, shows up in these mice as well. Um, And then to move on to the next slide, uh, slide eight here, we um, are looking at the overview basically of of my talk here, basically the pathway by which we think early life adversity is resulting in um, susceptibility to stress-related and emotional disorders like anhedonia later in life. Um, And we think this involves microglial synaptic pruning um, and ultimately the altered epigenetic programming of neuronal populations and stress circuit changes as well. So we'll get more into this in the talk today. Um, As just a little background on slide nine, I have uh, kind of a schematic of how the brain responds to stress. For those of you maybe not familiar. it's basically showing you the HPA axis or the hypothalamic pituitary, um, adrenal axis, which is, uh, kind of the canonical stress response center, um, in your body. So it starts up in the hypothalamus, um, in the brain, which is, uh, where you'll see the pink circle there on the slide. That's where uh, corticotropin releasing hormone or CRH is produced. Um, in the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus, or the PVN, and we'll be talking about that more throughout the talk today, Um, so just to get you oriented to that central um, node of the the stress response in the brain. Um, And then that molecular mediator, CRH, is shuttled down to the pituitary, where that pink arrow is going, below the base of the brain. Um, And there ACTH is made, uh, which is transported into the bloodstream and sent down to the adrenal glands on top of your kidneys, which is where the more canonical stress hormones we think about are made. So things like cortisol and corticosterone in rodents um, are released there. Uh, And this is kind of the canonical stress response. Um, I also have in the bottom left corner of this slide, some. Basically, an image, a confocal image, fluorescent uh, microscopy image of the PVN in the hypothalamus in a little more detail. So, we have the CRH neurons highlighted here in red. Um, that's TD tomato expressing neur- neurons for the uh, cognoscenti, and also green immunolabeling for CRH itself. So, just some validation of a transgenic mouse line that we use. That basically is a, a CRH reporter line um, in this in the in these mice, so we can see these CRH neurons really easily, which is great. Um, so moving on to slide ten, early life experiences again, this kind of two sides of the coin have been shown to bidirectionally influence synaptic innervation of CRH neurons in the PVN, um, this brain region that we've been talking about so far. Um, and so again, on the optimal or the, the good side of the coin, um, with augmented maternal care, so to speak, um, we have what actually results in uh, reduced excitatory transmission of these CRH neurons. Um, so what I'm showing you in the figure, if you're looking at those slides, is that um, VGLUT2, a marker of excitatory uh, synapses, is actually decreased in in, these are rats actually that got um, augmented or optimal uh, maternal care. So um, this results in decreased excitation of these CRH neurons and thus a, a lower stress response later in life. On the other side of that coin, the chronic early life adversity or stress side, you actually get the opposite, which is really interesting. You get increased excitatory transmission um in these crh neurons so if you look at the um the confocal images there you can see that there's more vglut2 now shown in red around these crh neurons um which is suggesting that there's increased excitatory transmission in these neurons and this actually results in more crh expression more stress hormone production um, and a greater stress response so you can kind of see how this um uh, bi relationship is, is, uh, really coming into play here. Um, and then if you go to the next slide, slide 11, um, on this one, I'm showing you that stress sensitive CRH neurons and the PVN are actually programmed long-term by these early life experiences. So in the case of the good side of the coin on um, the augmented series, oops, I'm <laughs> that's Siri, excuse me. Um, Uh, Basically, we're seeing with the augmented care conditions that there's less CRH production long term, um, which is programmed again into adulthood by this uh, early life experience um, in the PBN. And you also even see in terms of the stress response, uh, if you give these animals a restraint stress later in life, um, they show a much lower stress response in terms of their stress hormone production. Um, compared to control animals. So they're really resilient to these later stresses, which is very interesting. Um, so my question, again, coming into the lab and my postdoc was, if these changes in synaptic innervation that are caused by early life experiences are so important, um, then how are they occurring? So I really wanted to figure out The mechanism by which these changes in synaptic number were were taking place um, after early life experiences. Um, So looking on slide 13 now, um, I started in the lab just by asking the simple question of whether microglia are actually there in this brain region when when we're talking about these early life experiences taking place. So um, for example, I looked at postnatal day four in a mouse and postnatal day eight, um, and I compared uh, the number of microglia and neurons in these regions, um, and yes, they are there even early on, which is not actually very surprising because microglia do, again, enter the brain early during embryonic development. Um, they do kind of spread out into brain region, certain brain regions at slower rates than others. So it's always good to look to be sure. Um, but they are here in the PVN even four days after birth. Um, And what was interesting is that over time, over even those four days, we do see more um, intimate kind of colocalization or interaction between uh, microglia, which are shown in green on that slide, and the uh, CRH neurons, which are shown in red. Um, And you can see that colocalization in yellow um, there on the right bottom corner. Um, and that's quantified in the graph, just showing that there's more, uh, colloquialization between these cell types over time. Um, so moving on to the next one, uh, the next question was, okay, well, you know, they've already shown in in recent work, like Beth Stevens work out of Harvard, that uh, microglia prune synapses in certain brain regions, right? Like the visual thalamus, um, hippocampus had also been explored, but no one had really looked at the PVN. Um, so I needed to answer that question first to be confident that yes, they do actually prune synapses um, in this brain region. So the the best way to go about that in my head was to inhibit microglial function, Um, specifically their synaptic engulfment, uh, and then ask what changes in terms of the synapses number. Um, So in in this experiment, I basically treated microglia with a MyrTK inhibitor, um, which is just a drug that inhibits the phagocytic receptor on microglia that enables them to um, engulf or prune synapses. Um, so if you inhibit that function and then look at the number of excitatory synapses, you see an increase um, in the number of synapses, which does suggest that um, normally microglia are playing a role in synaptic pruning because if you inhibit them, uh, you get an increase in the number of synapses. Um, and that was interesting because if you go to the next slide 15, um, it looks very similar to the increase in number of excitatory synapses that we see um after early life adversity or ELA, um, And so that was an interesting kind of um, mimic here in that if you inhibit microglia, um, you get an increase in excitatory synapses, and um, ELA also causes that a similar magnitude increase on the CRH neurons in the PBN, both at P10 at the end of that early life experience, um, and also kind of enduringly, even a few weeks later, a couple weeks later, um, at postnatal day 25 in these mice, um, that increase is still there in the number of excitatory synapses, um, which we assume is probably persisting into adulthood. Now, we also looked at, um, on slide 16, the the function of these synapses, not just the structural changes, and we found that early life adversity um, does augment excitatory signaling in terms of Um, the spontaneous excitatory postsynaptic currents and their frequency. um, We saw an increased frequency in the ELA animals, um, whereas we did not see a change in the frequency of the inhibitory signaling, um, the spontaneous IPSCs. So that really um, kind of signaled to us that we should focus on the excitatory side of the equation um, which have really been shown in, in previous work, as well, to be more impacted by this uh, ELA experience. Um, so, putting all of that together, my hypothesis on slide 17 uh, is showing that um, really early life adversity seems to be inhibiting microglial synaptic pruning of CRH neurons um, to result in that excess of synapses. Um, so that's what I set out to explore further and more mechanistically um, in my postdoctoral work. Um, and so, of course, the first thing many people look at when they're interested in uh, microglia is, are they? Are there more of them? Are there fewer of them? Are they a different morphology? Do they look angry? <laughs> um, so we did all of those things and we really didn't find any changes. Um, we didn't see changes in the number of microglia or their morphology. Um, we didn't spine changes either in crH neuron number um, suggesting that probably the microglia aren't eating differentially um, number uh, different numbers I guess of these crH neurons during development. It's probably more at the connection level, the synapse level. Um, so from there uh, looking now on slide 19, we wanted to get more functionally um, uh, investigative basically the the uh, function of these microglia rather than just kind of the gross level changes that we might be able to see. Um, so the best way I could think of to do that was to do some live two photon imaging of these microglia interacting with um, the CRH neurons in living tissue. Um, so on the slide 20, I guess this is, would be another video that you probably cannot see playing. but. Um, This is essentially an example of the two-photon imaging that we implemented um, in acute brain slices of the PVN uh, from postnatal day eight dual reporter mice. Um, And so they basically have the red signal in their CRH neurons, and they have green um, fluorescence in their uh, microglia. So it enables us to see those uh, cell types interacting live in living tissue, which is really cool. Um, and so we were imaging these slices, uh, as quickly as we could, uh, post-sacrifice in order to get, um, kind of as little, uh, artifactual kind of microglial active activation, um, as possible. Um, but they ended up working out pretty well, which was great producing these, um, uh, really nice videos. Um, Now, if you go to the next slide, slide 21, we then ran into the issue, though, of, okay, we have these great videos, very pretty, but how do we actually quantify them? How do we get data out of this um, besides just watching them, right? Um, So what you can do, there are multiple ways to do this, obviously, but one way we picked up um, early on was a pretty manual analysis approach um, called a chymograph, which is just a time-by-distance plot Uh, which allows you to measure uh, the movement of of anything, basically, in in a video. So we basically were manually tracing the microglial processes um, and tracking them over time in these videos, over frames, essentially. Um, So we would trace the extent of the microglia's little arm or its process that it's using to reach out and, and survey its environment, Which is something they do normally um, in uh, in vivo in the living animal um, and in uh, these living slices that we collected. Um, So you can see that over time, you know, in the first row there for cell number one, the microglial process that's showing in frame one, it actually retracts or pulls in um, by frame 30. And you can see that visually in the chymograph where it pulls in over time over frames. Um, towards the cell body. Um, Another example shown in cell two on the bottom row that the uh, process actually grows out and then pulls back in later. Um, So just an example of how that's quantified. But um, in the next slide uh, is where we actually were able to quantify everything, um, get the total distance traveled by these microglial processes over time, over these 30 minute videos. Um, and then see that ELA, indeed, decreases the process distance traveled um, by these microglia. So, you know, interestingly, that, that suggests that um, the function of these microglia seems to be inhibited by ELA, which is uh, matching my hypothesis that maybe ELA is just um, kind of shutting down their function to some extent or inhibiting them. Um, now, of course I didn't believe it with just one approach like this. Uh, so I wanted to use another approach and to analyze these videos since they were so, um, complex. So we recruited to my postdoc lab, uh, a rotating graduate student who'd come from NASA actually, um, Jacqueline Beck, she's really amazing. Uh, she created this, uh, pipeline in Python essentially to automatically skeletonize these microglia in the videos. And track the processes in a much more automated way than we had in those uh, chymograph plots. Um, and so, what was really cool though is that she found a very similar result with this totally independent um, approach that she used um, to analyze the same videos. So she found that um, the process velocity of these microglial processes was diminished um, in the ELA mice. So again, they seem to be functionally inhibited um, by this early life experience, um, which is cool. So now it's more believable. Uh, So moving on to slide 24. Um, haven't yet showed or talked to you guys about how they're in actually engulfing synapses. So we did do some really cool electron microscopy work um, with Maria Tremblay in, in Canada, um, and you know confirmed at the nanoscale, essentially that these microglia are contacting and engulfing synaptic elements uh, in the PV in the developing PVN, really. Um, so then when we went uh, to To quantify this uh, with confocal microscopy, um, in slide 25, in the controls versus ELA animals, uh, we see that early life adversity um, results in a decrease in synaptic engulfment of microglia, specifically those that are contacting CRH neurons, though, which was really interesting. you know, if you look at the top graph on slide 25 on the right, um, you see a significant decrease in ELA in terms of engulfment. Um, but if you look at the uh, bottom right panel, the microglia that are not contacting CRH neurons um, actually show no significant difference with, with ELA, um, suggesting maybe that these CRH neurons are directly signaling to the microglia and uh, causing this decrease in synapse engulfment of these uh of the synapses that are on their um, cells so that was really interesting um the next question here was really what's the mechanism of this impaired microglial synapse pruning um in the developing pbn uh so moving on to slide 27 we can see that um really, we started looking at this phagocytic receptor, MRTK, which I mentioned earlier, uh, and we found that it's expressed primarily in microglia in the in the immature PVN. We did not see it expressed in astrocytes, which are another very important type of glia in the brain that some people have reported um, do express MRTK in other brain regions, but we don't really see it in the PVN at at this time point, um, so primarily in microglia, which is interesting for us, um, and then going on to slide twenty-eight, uh, when we compare control and ELA mice, and we look at the amount of MERTK that's there in these microglia, we see a decreased amount um, of expression of this phagocytic receptor MERTK, um, you know, suggesting that maybe it's uh, you know functionally diminished because there's less of it. Um, there is no difference in the total volume of uh, microglia, the P2RY12 volume uh, that I'm showing you, as well as no difference in the uh, volume of the PBN itself. So it's really this uh, diminished expression of mertk, the phagocytic receptor that we're seeing. Um, and then going on to slide 29, we see that uh, if we did a functional experiment um, in vitro. We basically delivered this mertk inhibitor um, to organotypic slice cultures and found that this actually increased excitatory synapses on CRH neurons in control animals um, or control PVN slices, uh, which is what we um, did before when I showed you that inhibiting microglia and their synaptic pruning increases synapses. Okay, we did that again. What was really cool was that uh, if you do this in ELA slices from ELA mice, um, you don't see a further increase in excitatory synapses, um, which suggests to us really that this is kind of um, already uh, a pathway that's inhibited by ELA. So we call this an occlusion effect, essentially, where it can't increase anymore uh, because it's already inhibited this pathway. Um, the mer signaling. Um, So that was really interesting and suggested that uh, this phagocytic um, pathway in microglia is most likely inhibited by ELA, which is why we're ending up maybe with this um, decreased amount of synaptic pruning and increased amount of synapses. Um, All right. So the last question here, the last part of the talk is really... um, the question of causation, really. So can we reverse the ELA-induced synapse access that we see uh, by reactivating microglia? Um, And this is kind of a necessary uh, question, like, is this inhibition of microglial function necessary for the uh, synaptic rewiring by ELA? Um, So to get at that question, the approach that i took that seemed the best in this case um, was using a chemogenetic approach and uh, if you guys don't know what that means it's um basically using uh these designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs they're called dreads Um, it's a very cool tool essentially uh, very commonly used in neuroscience these days um but very commonly used in neurons, I should say. It's not very commonly used in microglia. Um, So I I applied this tool, um, this chemogenetic approach to microglia um, and basically uh, used transgenic mouse lines crossed together to do this um, and produce litters that essentially had 50% of the litters expressing this um, GQ or activating type dread in their microglia, and fifty percent of the litters were expressing um, or not were not expressing the dread because they did not have the Cree Essentially, um, so fifty percent have this uh, tool that we can act- reactivate, quote unquote, microglia um, during ELA, and fifty percent are controls essentially. Uh, so this timeline in slide uh, 31 is showing you that um, basically we insert uh, a pellet with the drug, the designer drug, that is part of that acronym, the DREADS that I was talking about. Um, so this is Clozapine in oxide or CNO. That's something that activates the um, the DREADS that we've inserted into these uh, transgenic mice um, and shouldn't activate anything else. Um and so over basically a week from postnatal day 3 to postnatal day 10, while these animals are experiencing ELA, they also are receiving um, kind of the slow release uh, of drug of either CNO or uh, placebo, the matrix essentially of this uh, pellet. Um, And so then we can look at their uh, number of excitatory synapses at P10 at the end of that experience, or we can grow those animals up later um, to look at more functional outcomes such as stress reactivity in adulthood. Um, And so to do that, we we actually measured the stress response to um, an adult stress, uh, looked at their ACTH and corticosterone levels um, in their blood Uh, we also collected adrenal weights, um, which is kind of a measure of chronic stress throughout life. Um, and we measured their behavioral response to a predator cue, um, which is in something called the looming shadow task that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, so that's just an overview of the experimental design. Um, and looking at the next one, slide 32. This is just um, kind of validation that the approach uh, that we took is is working to some extent. So um, we were able to specifically validate that our dreads were expressed in, um, in the microglia specifically uh, in the developing PBN, uh, which is always good. <laughs> so uh, the next one, slide 33, uh, we did at first kind of a ex vivo um, validation study looking at in our acute slices of the pbn if we're imaging on the two photon microscope um, and we add cno or vehicle to the to the media that's perfusing on these slices um, basically what happens what changes with the microglial process dynamics um, that we can measure Uh, and what we saw is that when you add cno this uh, drug that will exclusively activate the gq dreads um, basically we see that the microglia move their processes more which does agree with the idea that we're we're kind of activating them with this uh dread system um so that was a nice kind of validation of the the idea this crazy idea that we were implementing (laughs) um so moving on to the next slide 34 we were then looking at um, the number of excitatory synapses in these uh, mice in the pvn on these crh neurons uh, and so the hypothesis shown on the left is that, again, early life adversity inhibits synaptic pruning. So if we give this kind of chemogenetic intervention approach with the dreads, um, we'll reactivate the uh, microglia and um, recharge them, basically, to do their uh, synaptic pruning duty. Um And so what we found agreed with that hypothesis that um, if we look at the far right light pink bar, the ELA group that got the the GQ DREADS with the drug to reactivate, um, basically we see a reduction in the number of excitatory synapses uh, back to control levels. Um, Even though these animals are experiencing early life adversity, we can prevent this increase in synapses from happening. Uh, with this uh, reactivation strategy, which is really cool. Um, now, the the real question, though, is what's the functional outcome of all of that? It's great to see changes in synapse number, microglial motion, process dynamics, but what does that mean for stress reactivity in adulthood? Um, so, this is where we looked at these more functional outcomes. Um, so, moving on to slide thirty-six. Um, if you look at the kind of Response in terms of stress hormones of these animals to an adult stressor, uh, we see that um, ELA mice uh, have a prolonged stress response. And this is in terms of ACTH, one of those stress hormones I mentioned earlier on. Um, so basically, they don't return to baseline in terms of their stress hormones after a stress has occurred. Um, they have this longer response. Um, But if you give the reactivation of microglia, the chemogenetic approach, you can rescue that response back to baseline, um, back to control levels faster uh, than the ELA animals had, which is really cool. So that's shown in the middle graph there. Um, It's also graphed as a decay index on the the right side of the screen um, or the slide. And so that was really interesting. Um, and we wanted to then look at uh, the kind of chronic stress response, which is really kind of nicely indicated by adrenal gland weight. So you can just uh, weigh these adrenal glands um, and see if they're enlarged, which is often seen with um, you know situations of chronic stress. Um, and it's something that we see after ELA uh, in our animals. So in that graph on slide thirty seven, Um, The dark pink bar is showing a significant increase of adrenal weight um, in ELA mice, but the light pink bar or the animals that got the microglial activation um, or reactivation, they actually show a return of adrenal weight to normal. by this uh, intervention which is really cool so we basically prevented the ela induced increase in adrenal weights um this kind of chronic stress marker um and then finally uh we wanted to kind of look behaviorally at these mice more in depth than their stress response so we used this looming shadow task uh which is pretty interesting uh pretty nice behavioral task so basically because mice are prey animals they will um you know, react to a predator stimulus uh, in multiple ways, multiple defensive uh, uh, responses can be seen. So we will often see uh, escape where the mouse will run away from that predator stimulus. Oftentimes you will also see freezing behavior where they decide, okay, I don't want to run away. I just want to freeze. That's more of a passive response. So hopefully the predator doesn't see them. But we basically can assess uh, how these animals respond um, to this basically uh, PowerPoint animation of a growing black circle on a a screen overhead um, that looks like a looming shadow of a predator, right? Um, And so what we see in our mice is that um, the ELA mice actually are slower to respond. So we looked at the latency to respond, Um, We didn't see any changes in how they responded, but we saw like what they chose, escape versus freeze, but we saw that they were slower to respond. Um, And we also saw that if we give that chemogenetic reactivation of microglia in the ELA mice, um, we can rescue their response rates to uh, the control levels again, so returning them to normal like we saw in the previous uh, graphs. So that was really exciting that functionally this seems to be, um, you know, not only rescuing their their synapse number, but also um, their behavioral response to stress, which is kind of what it's, you know, what's most important here. Um, So finally, moving on to the summary on slide 39, um, just to sum up what I've told you today. Early life adversity is uh, resulting in unpredictable maternal care, um, and this results in an inhibition of microglial function. We think likely through um, MRTK signaling or phagocytic receptor pathway that I discussed. Um, And this inhibits microglial synaptic pruning, which then results in the increased number of excitatory synapses on distress-sensitive neurons in this um, important brain region for the stress response. This leads uh, next to the altered epigenetic programming of these neural populations, um, which we know is uh, causing long-term increases in stress hormone uh, release like CRH um, and CORT. And then this leads uh, to altered stress circuit maturation um, during development. And finally, the susceptibility to stress-related emotional disorders such as anhedonia and depression. Um, So with that, I'd just like to thank everyone that's contributed to this work along the way. Um, I've had some excellent mentees in my lab as well as um, in my postdoc lab. uh, Big shout out, obviously, to my mentors along the way, Stacey Bilbo, who helped me fall in love with microglia um, long ago, and Tally Barham in my postdoc lab, who really guided and uh, sculpted kind of uh, my thinking along the way for this project and um, all of our collaborators that made that work possible. And of course, the funding that definitely um, enables that work to occur as well from both NIMH, um, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health and uh, the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. Um, and with that, I'd be happy to open the floor for any questions you guys have. Thank you so much. This was
1: so amazing. And um, <laughs> congratulations on the award because that uh, grant is also award from the um, Foundation. Oh yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um it's so cool that you use dreads and stuff in Galia, you know, I just use uh, yeah. use them in neurons. Uh, <laughs> in Europe. So
4: Right, that's, that's right. Really they can cool. work in other cells, I know.
1: <laughs> that is really cool and um yeah, congratulations to your work and that's uh, really great. Um I so I'll give the questions to everyone. I just I wanted to ask um A question for maybe for the future. Are you looking to also uh, looking into other like uh, we did
4: maternal separation. Maybe it broke up. Katarina, I heard maternal separation.
5: Action issues. Yeah, it should get restored in a second. Okay. Maybe more than a second. I know. <laughs> we need an
0: elevator oh, music. I know. Are, are you there, Katarina, or should I ask a it, question? She or? went to
5: mute, which is probably indicating that she's having connection issues on her side. So for, maybe... for me, the icon is gray, though, so that might mean that she's either getting a phone call or the phone has failed. So. Oh, sorry. There we go. Sorry. Okay. sorry. back. Oh, I'll you're back.
1: back. I'm really sorry. So, what did you hear? I was talking and just talking. just start from oh, the beginning. No yeah, <laughs> <Basically>. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, you
0: cut out at so maternal.
1: Congratulations! Oh yeah, we did some maternal separation, and we saw in RNA seq data um some differences in oligo, uh, in the oligodendrocyte, and then also yeah. um, in like long term um cognition deficits in adults and in habitual behavior that um, oh, you cool. maybe do something like that. I know we do way more behavior work than
4: we publish. So I right. To yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, yeah. And I definitely want to do some RNA sequencing of these microglia. That's the next step um, with my grant. But uh, I have not looked at all the dendrocytes yet. I think that would be really cool to look at in this model as well um i also haven't looked at habitual behavior but um i am hiring a postdoc who has been looking at uh operant conditioning type tasks that could be used for that kind of question so it may be in the cards in the future um oh, but, cool! yeah motivation yeah. was like really different like motivation yes. was sound. so yes yeah. yes yeah and we actually see changes in um like self-administration of uh, drugs of abuse. So like um, motivation to take cocaine is way down in these animals. Um, and it's actually very dependent on the sex of the animal, which I didn't get into in the talk at all. But um, the males, you know, have less motivation to take cocaine and also um, opiates, uh, but females, Take uh, far more opiates than uh, controls if they're if they had an ELA experience. Um, so yeah, it's it's sexually dimorphic,
6: um,
4: which is really so cool. interesting. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Please go ahead. I don't want to take over the stage here. Take advantage <laughs> of my position. Thanks, so uh, yeah, no worries.
4: Just,
5: just Serena, quickly before we just quickly before we get into that. Um, how much longer do we have the honor of your presence
4: oh well let's see i know i was kind of planning for 10 but we can go a little over that if we need to like ten fifteen, maybe okay so about 25 minutes right on thank you
3: yeah yeah thank you so much uh for sharing that oh sorry go ahead, go ahead doctor you wanted to say something oh i,
2: I can wait i had a question
3: yeah i too do- i did too so go ahead please Okay, so that was uh, that was
2: wonderful and um, very well delineated. Thank you so much for that, Doctor Bolton. The thing you. that kept coming up. Thank you. Um, two questions kept coming up into my mind. One was <laughs> um, gender related, of course. Yep. Um, and that takes, and that branches out into two separate, also questions, and one of them being paternal versus maternal use of the maternal effects, I guess, more or yes. less. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Okay, do you yes. want to talk about that before I continue on?
4: <laughs> Great question. I know cuz I'll forget the second part. Um, so yeah, I I it's so interesting because um you can't really assess paternal effects so much in mice. Um, because maternal care is so dominant in this species um, as it is in many um, mammalian species. Um, of course, if you look at humans, you can get more into that biparental care question, how what, what are dads doing in response to kind of an impoverished environment, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, back in my postdoc, uh, my advisor, Tally Barum had this awesome collaboration with uh, human type uh, studies. Where they were looking at um, what happens in in humans that have experienced a lot of unpredictability um, in their early life, uh, you know, situation essentially like more of a chaotic household versus um, more of a predictable and uh, controlled household, um, and it's really interesting because we see very similar outcomes in humans that experience unpredictable and uh kind of chaotic early life um environments and these mice that experienced um the limited bedding and nesting and this early life adversity that we have imposed upon them um so we see changes in the reward circuitry of the brain um that could be what's really underlying these depression-like um outcomes in terms of mental health that we see in both the mice and the humans um, after this type of experience. So uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely hard to pinpoint in the mice, whether it's mom or dad, but I think both could definitely have an impact because um, we're seeing this in the humans for sure.
2: You know, I worked, um, I did my undergraduate work uh, with Dr. Anthony Grace, who also has done quite a lot. of. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
4: That's awesome
2: yeah and so but but with his work through a different pathway he's showing um the propensity for expression of schizophrenia later in life with early life um adversity for those who are predisposed and that comes in the form of hypervigilance right right yes interesting the yeah there's so much to discuss here and i don't want to hold the stage but i will ask you that's a whole nother bag of of tricks we're going to put aside for now but when you look at right, when you look at yep. intergenerational trauma, uh, what yeah. you end up finding, so this is trauma, it's early life adversity, can be early yep. life, it can be intergenerational. In either case, what you find is hypocortisol Cortisol. Mm. I always have a hard time saying that. I know. <laughs> with, yeah. with increased um uh glucocorticoid receptor sensitivity, right? Mm-hmm. So seems to be a bit contradictory, huh? I don't know. What do you think about all that?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I feel like I've seen, you know, just as much on one side of that as I've seen on the other side (laughs) in the literature. Like some people find hypercortisolemia, some people find hypocortisolemia, so high versus low um in response to early life adversity and I think it really depends on the type the duration the predictability of these early life stressors that you're talking about um so when something is unpredictable and um really not controllable as in the case of this early life uh limited bedding and nesting that we have Um, it seems to result in this uh, increase in court uh, long term. But I think if it was more controllable, maybe if it was more predictable even, um, uh, if your maternal care wasn't changed to be completely fragmented and unpredictable like we see in this model, um, it might be a totally different or the opposite outcome. Um, So this is kind of like the stress inoculation literature to some extent um, that has been seen in other models. Um, we don't really see that as much in our model, but, um, you know, we haven't really looked at females as much in this model, so that could be something that needs to be, um, explored further in this, in terms of the sex difference as well.
2: Thank you so much. Excellent. Love it. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Yeah, about the
1: cortisol, I know it goes away from this, but um, there's also, there was a huge study about Holocaust survivors and- the That's exactly the one that, that I was that thinking was, about,
4: right. Yeah, oh,
1: <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> where there's lower cortisol. And it's and from the glucocorticoid receptors, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I was always thinking if that's not the resilient mechanism, because it's from the few that survived this uh, this unthinkable um, right. stress, right? So. Exactly. I was always they, thinking. They seem to be. yeah
2: That yeah. could be preselected but though, because.
5: The hippoc- no, I was just going to say it could be preselected. Like my grandmother was in a concentration camp, and like a lot of people didn't make it out of there, right? So there was an right. unfortunate genetic bias, I think, to the survivors to all have a similar kind of response. So.
2: That's a great right. point. That's very true. I thought about that.
1: Yeah, also, I really think that point. in a clinical level, it, it, it's, I mean, it can be very different because when we are talking about the cortisol, it can, the patient can just deal with the insufficiency, cortical insufficiency, and this is a different situation. So right. we should just monitor for the blood pressure and the level of the sugar. And right. they have a, I mean, different situation. So it's not that much that cannot be matched that much with the result of the science.
4: Yeah, that's a great point. And I didn't talk about that either. in in the sense that um, these animals have an early life adversity, but, you know, we're studying them when they're not, for the most part, when they're not experiencing in the later stress. So it could be totally different. Um, you know, when, when there's a later stress, we see the, obviously the prolonged response, like I showed you guys um, in, in the ACTH levels. But, um, you know, if you're constantly living under this chronic stress, maybe you, you eventually exhaust your your HPA stress response potentially, so um, you know it's it's definitely dependent on kind of the life history too of of the animal or person um, so that's a good point.
1: <laughs> I know Serena was waiting for your talk for a long time, so Serena, <laughs> please <go ahead.
0: laughs> well yeah no, oh thank you. It was such such a fascinating talk. Um, I have two thank questions. You. Um, so it, I, it, you paint a picture that uh, the mice are naturally born too sensitive to stress and the microglia's, uh, you know, balance or duty is to go prune and uh, reduce that to for resilience. Right. But um, it, it's interesting that it does last throughout life. So in terms of synaptic plasticity, Mm -hmm. Is that a region of the brain that is, uh, that just those, you know, there's, there's nothing to bring the synapses back or, um, or prune them?
4: Oh yeah. Good question. Um, Yeah. Very good question. So the reason that they originally chose this time period in these mice, the P2 postnatal day two to 10 is because this brain region kind of almost fully develops um or is at least mostly mature by p10 um so this brain region is an early developer whereas if you're talking about the prefrontal cortex which is uh, very important for higher cognition and things like um inhibition of uh, impulses and things like that um you know, that region develops a lot later. So we would be having to look at a totally different time point. I think if we wanted to study that brain region, for example, Um, so it's very brain region specific.
6: um, Mm -hmm.
4: And, you know, I don't think necessarily just because the sensitive period has ended, you can't change it. Um, I think, like you said, there's a lot of plasticity synaptic plasticity, especially throughout the brain into adulthood um and so it's just a matter of can you get them out of this rut i guess that the circuit has developed into right and we haven't in this case we haven't tried to enrich their lives in any way right to try to rescue them Um, but that could be effective Uh, so giving them different types of experiences like environmental enrichment has been shown in other brain regions to be effective, like in the hippocampus. Uh, I don't know that it's been studied as much in this brain region to be honest, but um but yeah, things like that could be potentially um kind of possible i guess to induce reinduce synaptic plasticity later in life if that makes sense
0: it does okay, so that's that's interesting. The other question was. In terms of the MRTK administration to the control, did that? Uh, did you? Were you able to characterize any difference in the control animals as to increased resilience? Good
4: question. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think back now. Go back to my slides. Um, for the MRTK mice, I guess we were kind of mimicking the ELA effect by getting rid of myrtk since it's inhibited in the ela um so we didn't see resilience yeah we saw more um i guess more uh mimicking of the stress sensitivity in the ela mice um in this situation but if you look at the um controls that got the gq dreads which you might be thinking of as well um Like if you try to activate the microglia in controls to prune more, which they're already pruning, you know, to a certain extent. What was interesting uh, is that you see kind of a diminished stress response. So maybe kind of suggesting resilience to some extent, Um, either it's either blunted or it's, uh, you know, um, so it's either not functional or it's. you know, towards this resilient phenotype, so that is definitely a possibility in that group. Um, it's uh, you know a little hard to say because in the behavior they did have a longer latency to respond to the stressful predator cue, um, like the Ela mice did. Um, but you know that in that context, maybe that is kind of a resilient response. Um, it's just it's hard to say in that uh, interpretation, but yeah, that's a really good question.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh,
5: if I if I may, uh, I think it's wonderful research. Like myself, I had some childhood traumatic experiences with my father spent a lifetime kind of struggling with it and i'm always fascinated by this kind of research because it allows me to kind of reflect on my own experiences and the processes that sometimes go on in my monkey brain and so i think (laughs) if there are senators or anyone i know i I said this actually earlier today about another talk but i think it's important that legislators and policymakers really pay attention to this kind of work because i think you can shift a lot of early childhood funding uh like we look at the differences in these outcomes we can see like you know a dollar in at age one can go much further than a dollar at age 10. so earlier interventions helping families and so on, is something especially significant now and given the recent uh attack in the the mass shooting over the weekend uh that was kind of something that made me reflect on the structure of families and how some families have to travel really far and they have much harder struggles than others. So thank you for doing this important work.
4: Thank you. No, that's a really great question. There was actually a very interesting study um, at UC Irvine while I was there looking at, yeah, supplementing family income early early in child development and like how profound of a um, impact that could have, you know, just, I think they were only giving like, maybe $200 a month or something, but it was this predictable infusion of, of this uh, supply right, of resources um, into the family's life. And it, it seemed like it was having kind of an outsized effect, which was really cool um, on these, these children's development, uh, brain development and cognitive development, things like that. So that is a very good point. <laughs>
5: I wonder if there would be a possibility of a study where you could make the provider of the baby mice, so like the parents, have a harder time or easier time and see if there was a similar reaction, kind yeah. of, oh, are the children picking up on the parents' stress difficulty levels? Because right. I think that's something that I often thought about growing up, uh, how difficult yes. things were for my mother.
4: Right, yeah, and that's something um, I often talk about in my talks, which I didn't today. But yeah, it's this whole thing about the maternal care, the paternal care, its it's so important because infants like developing babies and and of any species are so reliant on their their parents when they're that young that they they perceive the world around them through how their parents are perceiving it and reacting to it right so if if there's a bomb going off outside and your mom is just not worried about it then you're not going to worry about it right so it's like okay this is um it's very important to kind of think about how the, the parents are reacting to the environment because their reaction can, yeah, completely diverge um, in terms of good versus bad for the offspring. So that's a really good question.
3: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bolton, for that. Um, I wanna see if, because Ferris and Dr. Jordan, both of you posted questions in the chat. So I was wondering if you wanted to ask those questions, Ferris and then Dr. Jordan.
6: Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you for, for allowing me to, uh, to, to speak here. And it's a really interesting research. Um, I wouldn't say just one study. It's a really nice collection of work that has sort of built on each on itself, as well as, uh, the, the work of others in the field, um, and thank really you. cool methods as well. Oh yeah. And congrats on the K99. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's not something to, um, you know, to, to, to pass on. <laughs> right. It's, it's, uh, it's like, a, a pace shift. But um, right. but concerning this topic, so coming from the clinical world um, as, as a physician uh, researcher, really. So I, okay. I obviously I tried to grasp as much as I can from the basic science and the animal models that you were using. Um, right. So I had a couple of questions. Uh, the one, uh, first one would be for a couple of the steps that you used and had graphs on, uh, spe- especially those that sort of tried to summarize um, the change over time, as well as the effects after, uh, like in, in the ELA group of mice, as well as, uh, you know, as compared to the controls. What was the sample right. size for those yeah. uh, experiments? Good
4: question. And, um, I'm trying uh, to think back. Go ahead, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Uh, for which graphs you're referring to, typically our sample size is around eight uh, pups, mouse pups. Um, and we try to take that from as many different litters as we can. Um, to control for litter effects. So it could be just like we were talking about a second ago, one mom's response to this uh, this stressor is not the same as another mom's response, right? Um, So we try to represent multiple litters, at least, um, you know, five or so, if not more, from that that group of eight uh, that we try to include in most of these uh, assessments. Some of these groups are even um, 10, in terms of um, behavioral outcomes and things like that, you have a little more variability. So it can range, but yeah, typically eight to 10 is the group size for these things.
6: Okay, okay, that makes sense. Um, and for the models that you use, the, the mouse models, did you sort of um, create them yourself or were they available commercially? I was I'm just wondering about right. The- how, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how difficult it might be to create something <laughs> like that consistently, you know, over time. That's a great question, so, yeah. Um,
4: yeah. So, yeah, you know, they were not commercially available in the form that I, the final form that I ended up using them, but they, the components were commercially available. So that made it a little easier for me. You still have to do some extensive mouse breeding to get to what you need, which takes a year or two, depending on how well they do. But, um, but yeah, basically I was able to take kind of two different reporter lines, the CRH TD tomato neuron reporter line and the uh, CX3CR1GFP, which is the microglial reporter line and cross those together over multiple generations to get what I needed um, for these experiments. Um, so yeah, I didn't have to reinvent the wheel to to the extent that, um, you know, would have made it much longer of a process, but still probably yeah. a year of mouse breeding at least.
6: <laughs> well, kudos to you then. That just makes it even more impressive to be honest. Um, the the, the other two last pieces of questions would be relating to sort of the downstream effects and implications of this. So I was wondering if you, maybe you have that in mind already, or you have, you're planning to do that in a future, um, you know, step or future grant, um, that, um, to try to sort of remove a few confounders, which one of them was brought up, which is the the cortisol receptors and how they usually get down-regulated sometimes or out-regulated or just generally yeah. as, a, as, as a sort of a composite or not, not a composite really, but sort of a surrogate measure of quote-unquote resilience, I guess, right, uh, or, or what might be considered resilience in some aspect. Um, yeah. So I I think that would sort of even drill it down further in in terms of creating not just a simple association, but potentially a, you know, a uh, possible causal link, which Mm -hmm. would, I think, be absolutely amazing if if that can be, you know, uh, established, at least in part, because obviously there's like at least 10 criteria, the Hill criteria for causality, but at least I think that would... Uh, make it clearer and remove a bit of ambiguity that is really hard to remove. Um, and then the right. other thing, yeah. And the other oh, thing. Sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, no worries. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, go ahead.
4: Oh, no, yeah. I was just going to say that definitely the next uh, step in my <laughs> grant proposal is uh, actually deleting glucocorticoid receptor from microglia specifically. Um, so, kind of getting at your question there, um, mechanistically, you know, we think these microglia are responding to stress hormones from these CRH neurons potentially um, in the PVN. And so if we delete this uh, critical receptor that is, um, you know, allowing them to sense this stress uh, from the neurons, then, uh, you know, do we prevent all the cascade of ill effects um, from happening in the first place? So definitely uh, a great idea for sure.
6: (laughs) Yeah. And so the last one is a bit maybe... Sort of fantastical, I would say, in terms of being not so realistic, I guess. But just throwing it out there, just so that I wouldn't regret not, you know, saying it. But essentially, um, you know, trying to test this in humans, uh, mm. you know, obviously in a very ethical way, not, not in a very <laughs> similar way with, with these animal models, but. Um, now, now I'm sure, of obviously, the animal models have been going through very ethical considerations that are extremely right. strenuous, you know, strenuous and and rigorous and and all right. of that. But obviously, for humans, it's going to be a completely different story to try to even test that remotely. So, right? Are you aware of any sort of a surrogate measure of what you were measuring in these mice, um, or yes. maybe potentially something question. that can be studied observationally, not in a in a non-interventional way? Um, right. I think that would be super interesting as well. And I'm not, I haven't really searched the literature around this. I'm aware of a few studies that have tried to get at this, at this link between the early childhood trauma and the, yeah. later, um, the, the later sort of uh, psychological distress in the many, you know, many aspects they can take from anxiety to depression, et cetera, et cetera, right. later in life. But obviously these are more mercurial in terms of their associ- associative links. Um, mm-hmm. not, not, and they're obviously far from objective as compared to the studies you're doing. So I'm just trying to think if you're aware of anything that can be done in that domain. And thanks again, right. for wonderful work.
4: Uh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely difficult to look at, uh, microglial function in humans. Uh, currently, you know, there is some pet imaging that's developing that allows you to look at to some extent, the level of microglial activation, quote unquote, that you see in a living human's brain, which is awesome. Um, But it's very early days, very rough measures at this point. Um, So, you know, really the best hope would be looking um, kind of postmortem at some of these things, if we could get our hands on brains of people that um, experienced early life trauma or adversity, Um, And later, you know, look at how the circuits are kind of wired up, how their neurons uh, synaptic changes are occurring, um, and even if their microglia look altered later in life. um, Most likely, this won't. We wouldn't be getting many brains from during development, which is when you know I was looking at in these mice. But uh, but maybe we could look at more of the long term outcomes uh, in in these populations, which would be really cool. So that's a very good question
1: which may be section from uh, when people put an epilepsy uh, implants in. Oh, yeah. um, Would that work maybe?
4: Yeah, that's a good point, Katarina. Yeah, usually those are in more the limbic regions of the brain, not as much the hypothalamus as far as I know, but that would be really cool if we could even get insight into those other brain regions and see if this is more um, kind of generalizable as well. very good point.
3: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bolton. Um, Dr. Jordan, we're going to come to you in a moment. Um, does anybody else from our team have any questions? I have one, but um, I want to make sure that everybody gets their questions answered. <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, Dr. Jordan, if you could. Oh, sorry, Katarina. No, did you no, have I one? Said, go ahead. <laughs> Oh, yeah. so Jordan, if you can ask your question really quickly, and if we have time, I might ask mine, but go ahead, please.
5: Sure, yeah. No, when, when I think of sexual dimorphism, I think of uh, at the organismal or organismic level, and, and when you talk, ab- when you reference it, I was just curious if you could elaborate what you meant, because, you know, I would normally think of brain density or volume, but certainly not at the macrophage level, but maybe I missed something.
4: Good question. Yeah. There's so many differences between the sexes, uh, that we don't really talk about in terms of molecular level. Um, you know, not necessarily basic cell signaling pathways always, but there are some instances of that even. Um, but I was referring more to, um, in our case, we see, for example, the change in excitatory synapse number in males, we see that show up early at P10, at the end of the early life adversity experience, but we don't see it show up in females until later, like um, two weeks later, it's it's fully there. It's not really there though, early on. So they have kind of a different developmental trajectory in terms of um, how things are changing in response to early life stress. Um, we basically see kind of different stress responses to some extent as well. Um, And then this leads to uh, different behavioral outcomes, as I mentioned. So in uh, the males, we see more depressive-like behavior, more like anhedonia, whereas in the females, we don't really see that anhedonia to the same extent, but we see increased um, susceptibility to drug addiction. So uh, increased um, self-administration of opiates in in female uh, rats for example so um, so yeah kind of the trajectory and the developmental stages can be different between the sexes if that makes sense
5: yeah I mean I just think of morphism as with regard to morphology shape and size so I was confused I see what you're saying behavior, yeah but sure okay thank you
4: yeah that makes sense <laughs>
3: Thank you so much Dr. Bolton. Um yeah, so you said 10:15, so I don't want to ask you any more questions to keep you longer than you have to. <laughs>
4: Oh, you're too you're too kind. I could take one more question if you. Oh, if you okay, really all right. Want to ask?
3: Yes. Um. Yeah. It was just something because. Um. Um. Yeah. I. am kind of thinking about if you had the chance or you planning to maybe study successive generations. Um. Because. Um. Uh, I'm yeah. an epidemiologist and I'm interested in molecular epidemiology, which kind of deals with the. Um. Environmental and genetic uh, risk factors wait, for wait. certain conditions. So in this case, it would be mental conditions. So. Right. Um, how do some of these things affect su- successive generations maybe after this traumatic event? So, because we're talking also right. in humans about generational trauma and all things like that. So I just yes. want to know if this is something that you have looked at. Yeah, Oh,
5: yeah, great question. Love that question. Great Plus one for that question from those Plus two.
4: I know, I'm surprised no one had asked that yet, actually. That's a, that's a common question I get, and it's a great question. Um, I have not looked at it, is the short answer. And no one in my... Um, Postdoc lab had looked at it either in this model, but I'm sure someone is doing that. Um, The question would be: you know, does this early life adversity translate to changes in the successive generations? Is there kind of an epigenetic mark that gets passed on um, across generations that could? result in these long-term changes, even across generations, which would be really, really crazy, I feel like, if it did. Um, and I kind of hope it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. um, I know. I'm like, that's scary. Uh, because, you know, our model, I would say, is not necessarily as profound as a, a, a trauma. I wouldn't call it a trauma, necessarily. It's It's more of an adversity. It's, you know, changes in your maternal care that you experience as a pup so it's it's you know it's an adverse condition for development but it's it's not major like let's say the holocaust or something like we were talking about in humans earlier um so it it may not have as you know long-term and huge of an impact across generations um but you know nobody has really done that so someone needs to do it for sure
3: (laughs) yeah i think so i think it'd be really great and really interesting to study something like that
4: it would explain yeah. a lot about human condition
3: for sure.
4: <laughs> right. Well, and you just reminded me that, you know, you could also try looking at cumulative effects. Like you don't even have to look at, uh, I mean, you could look at, is that original uh, impact still there, even if you don't have any more quote unquote trauma, but also if it builds up over generations too, which would be really crazy um, and very uh, scary if that happens. Thank you so, so much. Be behavioral
2: changes, wouldn't there? So. Well, I mean, uh, unless you actually are looking at it on the molecular level, you don't know if, if it's which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Because
1: that's true,
2: right? Because you're now, now you've led to a behavioral change, which is going to cause a change in the <laughs> right in the interaction yep. between the maternal and the pups. So,
4: right, right. Exactly. Maternal care changes do often get passed on kind of experientially. Um, so. Those pups could grow up to behave similarly um, or not necessarily similarly, but have some kind of uh, perturbation like their mothers did. So totally uh, a good point.
3: Thank you so much for answering my question. <laughs> I was yeah, so like no looking worries. forward to an answer. I really hope someone looks into it for sure. Um, yes. but yeah, um, that's it. That's all we got. <laughs>
1: I wanted to comment. Um, we had a researcher here, and I'm
3: blanking
1: on the name. He was amazing, uh, from Australia, that talked about um how um non-coding DNA, basically yeah. um RNA um uh, activity was responsible for extinction training, and then we asked a similar question, and he said. There's a lab in Israel that is working on trauma-related um, generational work. And we should invite him and people that work in this type of field together. He would love to come back and have like a roundtable discussion around this. Oh, nice. So, yeah, if, uh, if I get to organize it maybe for the fall or something or the winter, I would definitely yeah. also ask you to come back because i think it would yeah be that amazing sounds great discussion <laughs> definitely <Yeah. laughs> they, they look into non coding um dna activity and that may be the, these uh self replicating um dna that is um ancient viral origin that could maybe be participating in this transgenerational transmission right. So yeah. yeah, it would be cool to uh, have you all here. So I will definitely reach out to you if I, you know, once I get to have time to organize. Yeah. Right, of course. <laughs> no <Don't> worries, Katerina. <laughs> so thank you so much. It was such an amazing talk and your work is so cool. Thank you. <laughs> so, thank you um, this great opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was so great to have the opportunity to get to know you and to get to know your work better and to hear all the questions. Thank you everyone for asking all these interesting questions. I really enjoyed the yes. discussion. Thank you. Great questions. Yeah. And um, yeah, as I said, come back. I'll reach out to you once I organize this. And okay. uh, <laughs> a lot of grants for you, a lot of non-bureaucrat, like please don't have any bureaucratic hurdles a lot of oh, money from bread. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great <laughs> but you, you know, you're doing great so you don't need any luck wishes from me so anyway, <laughs> thank you everyone and um, yeah, thank you Jessica and if you like um, discussions like this and rooms like this please follow the Science Society and we will have um also other guest speakers coming. So um, we will have our next room actually on Wednesday, uh, Dr. Bolani, he will come and talk about how gut, bacter- gut bacteria associated with different personality traits. And uh, then we'll have on Thursday, Dr. Gebelin, he, Um, is talking about how he managed to do mitochondria mitochondria transplantation between living cells. This is like a really important step for rejuvenation. And then we'll have Dr. Uyin talking about building complexity in biological design spaces. Um, He is at CUNY here in the um, Nanotechnology Department. And um, yeah, it will be a really exciting talk. And we'll have on Friday a room about how dogs recognize dog and human emotions, how they are really good Mm -hmm. at recognizing emotions from other species, which is kind of impressive. And then on Saturday we have using uh Dr. Chen Cherry Cheng, she will talk about um using molecular orbital based machine learning a new type of machine learning which will be really cool too. Um so thank you Jessica this was amazing um and thank you everyone. thank
3: you. <laughs> thank
1: thank you, you so much India. for the invite. Have a good
3: evening everyone.
0: Thanks yes, everyone. You too.
1: Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. I'll close the room. Three, two, one. Bye.